morning again, Coastal Church. Thank you guys so much for being here with us. Again, if you don't know me, my name's Hunter Boone. I'm the family and worship pastor here at Coastal Williamsburg. Um, I wanted to say, hey, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, this week was obviously Thanksgiving. I pray that it was a time that you got to spend with um, family, reflecting on things that we have to be thankful to the Lord for. Um, and I'll tell you, one of my favorite parts about Thanksgiving, um, apart from the food and all of that good stuff, one of my favorite parts about Thanksgiving is sitting around the table and reliving the embarrassing family stories that always seem to get retold at the table, right? So my family has three or four of these stories in regular rotation. And I figured I'd share one just as briefly as I can. I wanted to share one with you guys this morning. One of the stories is largely based on a sixth grade science project that I had to do called a Rube Goldberg machine. Now, if my mom were here right now, she would already be walking out because she knows how this story is about to go. Um, and there's a reason it gets told every Thanksgiving. I love telling this story personally. But the, the gist of the story is this. I, the assignment was to build a Rube Goldberg machine. If you don't know what that is, basically... It's a machine that displays a bunch of chain reactions. And so you might roll a marble down a track and the marble knocks over a domino and the domino hits a pair of scissors or a lighter and lights a candle and the candle melts and so on and so forth. And then finally the end is like a piece of toast drops into the toaster and that's the task you're trying to accomplish. That's a Rube Goldberg machine. So sixth grade me was all over it. Like that was right up my alley. I loved doing that kind of stuff. I thought it was so cool. And I'm not gonna lie to you guys, my project was sweet. It was awesome. Except for one part. There was one part of the project that I could not get to work. There was a baseball sitting on a ledge, and I, I was desperate for this baseball to fall off of the ledge, land on a pair of scissors, and cut a string. Well, day in and day out, I would try and try and try and tweak just a little bit here and there, loosen the scissors up or adjust the angle of the baseball. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. And it felt like an eternity that I couldn't get it. So one day, I stop working on my science project because I got to go to baseball practice. I'm at baseball practice and little sixth grade me is playing baseball and my loving mother thought that she would try to help me and to get this project to work. So she, while I'm at baseball practice, was tweaking my project. And lo and behold, she got it to work to where every single time the baseball would fall just right and it would cut the string every single time. And she thinks to herself, she's at home waiting for me to come home, my son is going to be so grateful. I come home, I was not grateful. I, I was not grateful at all. In fact, I, the only words that I have to describe the way that I felt was an absolute emotional meltdown. Like, I lost it. Little sixth grade me, just, I was bawling my eyes out. My mom was like, stop crying. Why are you crying? We got it to work. And I was like, I don't know. You hate me. You're out to get me. Like, I don't know what I was saying. I really don't. I was having an emotional meltdown. And here's, the, here's my favorite part of the story. My mom, I don't know exactly what I said to her. I don't remember the exact words, but I said something. I know that I said something. Because I watched my mom go into a mode that she's been in, in maybe twice. I've seen her in this mode maybe two times in my entire life. Steam's coming out of the ears. The veins are popping out of her head. And here's what she does. In my mother's wrath, this is like several days before the project is due, dismantles the entire machine. She dismantles the entire project. I'm talking about baseballs and scissors. Everything was everywhere. And I went from meltdown to stiff as a board, just out in shock. I didn't know what to do. And that right there is my favorite Thanksgiving story to tell. You don't get the ending. I'm not giving it to you. That's where we're going to end it for today. But here's two things that I learned. There's two things that I learned from that story. The first thing is this. 
don't talk back to mama. Like, mama is not the one to talk back to. If you're going to talk back to somebody, talk back to dad because he's a little softer than mom. But mom, that's a no-fly zone, right? You, don't, you do not talk back to my mom. That's the first thing I learned. The second thing I learned was this. I was so upset. I was so emotional. I was so sad about the circumstance, about my project, about the fact that I couldn't complete the task, that I couldn't see clearly that what my mom was trying to do, she was trying to do something good for me. But I was so sad, I was so upset, I was so emotional, I couldn't see that clearly. Now, today, we are going to continue our sermon series in Psalm 119. Specifically, we're looking at verses 65 through 72. And what we learn about the psalmist is a little bit of his experience with suffering. And specifically, what we learn about the psalmist is the way that he thinks about his suffering. Now, specifically, what I'm talking about is verse 71. It says this, It's good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. What the psalmist is saying in that verse, and we'll come back to this in a few minutes, but what he's saying is, I have experienced suffering and pain and sorrow and deep hurt, but God, I know because you are good, you are using that for my good and for your glory. You are using my pain and my suffering to reveal more of who you are to me. And now, when I think about suffering in my own life, I don't react usually in a psalm, in the 119 verse 71 way. More often than not, I react the way I reacted to my mom, where all I can see is my pain and my sorrow and my hurt. More often than not, I struggle to see that the Lord might be trying to do something good for me. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be looking at a biblical understanding of affliction and pain and suffering. And I have two goals for us today. There's really just two main ones. The first, we have to start with a foundational understanding of God's goodness. We have to start with the understanding that God is good. And then once we've established that foundational understanding, we can then understand how God uses affliction and suffering in our lives um, to reveal his goodness to us. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read the passage. Again, that's Psalm 119, verses 65 through verse 72. I'll pray for us, and then we'll begin to unpack the text. So starting in verse 65, this is the word of the Lord. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It's good. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for today. God, thank you for an opportunity to come together and to worship you. And God, today I pray um, that you would speak to our hearts. God, I know that there are people here today who are hurting and in pain and who are suffering. God, I pray that you would give us hearts to see, like the psalmist, that you are good, and you do good, and you may be trying to do something good even in the midst of our suffering. You want to use our suffering for good. So help us to see that clearly today, God. Help us to have eyes to see from your word and ears to hear. God, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. 
Okay, so like I said, we're starting with the foundational understanding that God is good. So right off the bat, point number one, sermon point number one, God is good. Really short and sweet. That's how we're starting today. We're starting with God is good. Now, where do I get that from the text? Obviously, the goodness of God is something that we see all throughout Scripture, but where do we see it in the text today? Well, the psalmist makes it very, very clear, very short and sweet. Verse 68, he says, you, God, are good, and the things that you do are good. That's where we get it from today. Now, I want to take a second here, and let's, let's talk about that statement, you are good. I think that that's a statement that generally you can make about any given person. And here's what I mean. I say all the time, so-and-so is a good guy, right? That's really not all that different from saying he is good and saying he is a good guy. But what am I really saying? If I say he is a good guy, what, what's really behind that statement? Here's what I think. If I say so-and-so is a good guy, what I'm really saying is I have a standard of what it means to be good, and this person lives up to that standard. And so I took a second. I didn't take long. This is not an exhaustive list, but just the first few things that came to my mind. I said, what does it mean to be good? Right? And this is the list that I came up with. Here's a guy who tells the truth. He loves well. Maybe he loves his friends and his family well. He's a trustworthy guy. He doesn't lie. He doesn't steal. He's compassionate, right? These are some examples of, of, of goodness, right? Of, of things on my list to say, if you do these things, I can safely qualify you, classify you as a good guy. As long as you live up to these standards, I can call you a good guy. Now, the psalmist says, God is good, and I say, he's a good guy. What's the difference in those two statements? What's the difference in those two statements? The difference is this. God does not have to live up to a standard for us to know that he's good. What do I mean by that? Our goodness, the human being's goodness, is measured by the way that we live up to the standard. God is good because he is the standard. Here's another way to say it. The character of God is the standard that we use to measure the character of man. God is not a good guy. He is good. He's the ultimate, pinnacle, final standard of what it means to be good. Now, there's another thing that we need to see here. When we see a person's goodness, right, we're measuring their goodness against this standard that God has set. And so necessarily what that means, because we're being measured against this standard, is that we sometimes have to fail to live up to this standard. If we all never failed to live up to the standard, we ourselves, like God, would be considered the standard, but we're not. The doctrine of sin tells us that we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fail to live up to the standard that God has set in and of himself. And so when we read a verse like Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What we're really understanding from that is that God has set a standard by being himself. God is the standard of goodness, and we are called to live up to that standard, but you and me every single day fail to live up to the standard that God has set. And that's what we see about ourselves. We fail to live up to the standards every day. What do we see about God from a statement like this? Here's what we see about God. It's impossible for him to break that standard because he is the standard. So we read a verse like 1 John 1, 5. If you were with us this summer, you know that we went through this as a church. And one of the things that we continually came back to is 1 John 1, 5, which says, God is light 
and in him there is no darkness at all. What that means is God is light. God is the standard, the ultimate pinnacle of goodness, and in him there is no bad whatsoever. There's no evil in him whatsoever. And that's why when we read a verse like James 1.13, which says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Here's what we're reading from that. It's impossible for God to cause you to sin. Why? Because that would be an act of evil. And the moment that God acts evilly, the moment that God participates in an evil act, he ceases to be God because there's no evil in him at all. I'm trying to make my point very clear here. God is good. And we don't say that because he's lived up to a standard of good. What I'm saying is that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. God is good. And there is no evil or badness in him whatsoever. Point number one for today, God is good. He is the ultimate standard of goodness. Now, as I said earlier, we want that foundational understanding so that we then can move in uh, and begin to understand how God uses pain and suffering and affliction um, to reveal his goodness to us. Now, I didn't... um, I didn't pick this topic necessarily to preach on today. I didn't say, hey, it was Thanksgiving this week. Everybody's pretty, probably riding high. Everybody's very thankful. Let's bring them down with some suffering. Like, that's not what I said. I didn't do that on purpose. But we see it in the text. Where do we get the affliction piece from in the text? Primarily, there's two verses. The first one is this, verse 67. The psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it again. But this time, I want you guys to listen to it and key in on a couple key phrases. Think temporally. Think in the sense of time. All right, I'm going to read this again. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. You catch the two key phrases, before and but now. So we see before indicating a state of being that the psalmist was in previously. So previously, what does he say? He says, I was afflicted and astray. That's who I was before. That was my state of being before. But now, a change in the state of being, I love the law of the Lord. Now I'm following the Lord. What's the, what's the psalmist trying to say in verse 67? I think that what the psalmist is trying to say is that it's the affliction It's the affliction. That's the thing that changed me from being wayward to now following the Lord. Why do I think that? Because verse 71 makes his point very, very clear. And we talked about this a minute ago. It's good for me. It was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. The psalmist's point, I think, is that God can and often does use our affliction, use our pain and suffering, to help us see his goodness more clearly. The point the psalmist wants to make here, I think, is this. It's point number two for you today. Affliction reveals the Father. Affliction reveals the Father. God wants to use our affliction, to use our pain, to use our suffering, to show us how good he really is. And again, this isn't something that I just came up with and decided I want to talk to you guys about today. We see that theme that God uses pain and suffering for our good and for his glory. We see it all the way through scripture. And I've got a few examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul is telling the Corinthians about his missionary journey and how hard it's been. Here's what he says about it. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What Paul is trying to tell us here is that we literally despaired of life itself. We were suffering. We were in pain. But I see clearly now, God was using that pain and suffering to encourage us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 12, he says he's been talking about this thorn in the flesh, right? We all know about Paul's thorn in the flesh. I've begged with the Lord to take this thorn away from me. I've pleaded three times and he hasn't taken away from me. God says to Paul, I'm not going to take it away from you. And here's why. Verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. God is saying to Paul, I'm trying to show you how powerful I am through your pain and suffering. And so, no, I won't remove the the thorn because I want you to see more clearly who I am, how powerful and how good I am. And if you don't like either of those, I've got one from the Old Testament for you. Job 36, 15. I love this verse. You ready? Short and sweet. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. That is not a coffee cup verse. We don't write that on a coffee cup and drink our morning coffee out of that. That that is not a coffee cup verse. Let me change one word and we'll make it a coffee cup verse. By, let's change it to from. God delivers the afflicted from their affliction. Now that is a cup of coffee that I can get behind, right? Like I love that. God delivers me from my pain and suffering. Yes, talk more about that. That is not what this verse says. God delivers the afflicted not from their affliction, but by their affliction. God uses affliction to deliver the afflicted. We see all over the place in Scripture that God uses affliction to reveal truths about himself to the afflicted. And so I'm going to take just a second here, and I want to talk practically about how that plays out. I've got a book here by Timothy Keller. He is one of my favorite authors. Um, This book's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And in this book, um, Keller basically, at least in this section of the book, he says, I want to know what goes on inside the mind of a person who is like seriously, seriously afflicted, experiences really just awful suffering, and then somehow in the midst of that comes to saving knowledge of Christ. How does that happen? That seems backwards. That seems like it shouldn't happen that way, but it does a lot. And so he says, I want to know um, how that happens. So he interviews some Christian psychologists, and this is a quote from one of the psychologists that he, he uh, interviewed. It says this, trauma shatters belief systems and robs people of their sense of meaning. In doing so, it forces people to put the pieces back together, and often they do so by turning to God or some other higher principle as a unifying principle. What he's saying, what he's saying is that when a person experiences trauma or suffering to a certain magnitude, it's almost inevitable that they start asking the questions of what is going on? Why is this happening to me? And eventually it all gets down to they lose their sense of meaning, right? Why am I here? What, is, what does my life even mean? In that they find their answer in the gospel. They find their answer in, I am a child of God created in his image, and I exist to glorify him with my life. That is practically speaking how a person experiences suffering and finds the Lord through that suffering. Now, what I'm about to read, I'm going to read another quote from here. It's more important to me that you guys hear what I'm about to read than what I just read. So I'm going to read it, but hear my heart in this. I don't want to celebrate suffering 
or prescribe it for anyone or minimize the moral imperative to reduce it where we can. I'm getting emotional because I know some of you guys in here. Um, and I know the pain and suffering that you guys are walking through right now. And I think, I think it would be wrong. I think it would be unhelpful for me to stand up here and quote verse 71 at you and say, it's good that you're afflicted, that God can show you his goodness through your affliction. I think that's wrong. I don't think that's helpful for me to say. Um, I think that that statement that the psalmist makes is, it's a statement that has to be made about yourself that's encouraged by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can lead you to say something like that. I can't convince you to say that about yourself. And so my point here, the next thing that I would read, my point here is not to say it's good that you're afflicted and you should be glad that you're afflicted. That's not my point at all. In fact, the next thing I would read, God is grieved at our grief. God doesn't want us to be in pain and suffering all the time. My point up here is to tell you not it's good that you're afflicted. I think it's good that you're afflicted. My point is to tell you I am here. This body of believers is here so that we can walk alongside you and grieve with you. That's the point that I'm trying to make. So I want to just say this. I don't, the point of this sermon is not for me to tell you I'm wishing affliction on you. I wish that you were afflicted. That's not the point of my sermon today. But if you are afflicted, I want you to know this quote from Timothy Keller hits the nail on the head. God is so committed God is so committed to defeating evil that he is ready to help us use it for good even in our individual lives right now. God wants to use your affliction to reveal himself to you. And so point number two, affliction reveals the Father. Now, not everyone turns to God in pain, right? We talked about that, what that Christian psychologist said. A lot of people experience pain and suffering and they turn to God and they get answers to the questions that they're asking. Not everyone does that. And the reason I think is because God has plans for our suffering and so does our enemy, so does Satan. And so point number three, I think, is affliction destroys the wicked. Affliction destroys the wicked. Now that point is a quote directly out of Psalm 34. Literally it says affliction slays or destroys the wicked. And so here's how I want to unpack this point. I'm going to ask you a provoking question, all right? How do we reconcile in our minds? If God wants to use our affliction to reveal himself to us, how do we reconcile in our minds the Christian who experiences suffering and then walks away from the faith because of it? Does that make sense? Why, why do we see people, Christians, who experience this absolutely gruesome form of suffering, why are they walking away from the faith? Here's what I have to say about that. I think that our enemy is not creative. That's something that Pastor Colin has said from the pulpit before. Our enemy's been doing the same things over and over and over since the creation of man. And I'll show you. He, think back to the creation of man, right? What happened? God creates Adam and Eve. He gives the commandment, right? You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you shall surely what? Die. Eve's tempted. Eve is tempted by Satan to break the commandment, to eat from the tree. How was she tempted? What did Satan do to tempt her? The first thing he did is this. He says, did God really say? He gets you questioning, right? And he's been doing, he does the same thing to us that he did back then. First thing he does is he gets you questioning. And we don't have a biography of Eve, right? So we don't know exactly what she was thinking when she was tempted. But I know how I would respond in situations like this. That one question, did God really say, that one question turns into about 50 really quick. 
right? My brain, I'm an overthinker, so I overthink it, and I start asking more and more questions, and it just piles on top of each other, and I start to spiral. And it's in that moment that Satan moves from questioning to answering our question with lies. What does he do? He says, first, did God really say? I imagine that Eve probably started to spiral, and once he saw that, here's what he started doing. No, you, Eve, will not surely die. Satan waits when we are suffering and in pain and afflicted. He waits until we are spiraling out of control to start answering our questions with lies until we believe that God himself is the liar. What's my point in this? We have to know the truth. The point is not don't question. In fact, I think that wrestling with the Lord, asking the tough questions is almost mandated from the Bible. If it's not mandated, it's at least clearly seen all the way throughout Scripture. So questioning and wrestling with God is not the problem. But when we question and when we wrestle, we always have to fall back on the truth. We have to know the truth. And this is the truth. God is good. Again, we've got to go back to that foundational piece. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and now proclaim to you. This is the truth. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is good. Not that he lives up to some standard that we've set for him for what it means to be good, but God is the standard of good. Satan will have us forget that. And when we start questioning... And Satan starts lying to us to answer our questions. We forget that God's the standard and we start thinking, okay, he's got to live up to some standard that I have set for him. And then we start asking questions like this. Why isn't he giving me relief? Why? He doesn't seem to be living up to the standard in this instance. Does that mean that God's not good? If you sit there long enough, if you sit in those questions long enough without either reminding yourself or being reminded of the truth that God is good, here's how you know Satan's won. When you make a statement like this, I can't believe in a God who would allow this to happen. That's how you know Satan has won. And so I want to point out a glaring hole in this sermon so far. Point number two, affliction reveals the Father. Point number three, affliction destroys the wicked. Which one is it, Hunter? Those, those, those are incompatible. They, they contradict each other. So which one is it? Here's my answer. You ready? You're not going to like it. Neither. It's neither. What do I mean? Same author, Tim Keller. Um, before he died, he had probably four decades of ministry experience, and he learned a couple things. And I, I read this in his book. He said, more often than not, you you watch a person come to Christ through suffering. Suffering is kind of the the catalyst that moves a person to saving knowledge of Christ. And yet, suffering is also the primary reason why people leave the faith. And here's what was really interesting to me. He said, more often than not, both of those people, the one who finds Christ through suffering and the one who walks away because of suffering, more often than not, their suffering was very similar, if not exactly the same. So here's the question. How can two people... Two different people experience the same type or even the exact same suffering, and one finds Christ through it, and one walks away. How does that happen? Here's a quote from Keller. He says, it's not the affliction that causes us to stumble. It's how we respond to the affliction that determines our faith. 
He says, both of those people, the one who finds Christ, the one who walks away, both of them would say that suffering is the thing that caused me to change, but they're both wrong. It's not the suffering. It's not the affliction. It's the way that we respond to suffering that counts. You are not passive in the face of suffering. I want to just briefly share a story about a a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you guys might know that name. She was 17 and she had just become a new Christian, right? And so she is swimming in the Chesapeake Bay, and she dives off a boat or a dock or something straight into a sandbar, breaks her neck, and she almost drowns in the water, and they pull her out. They save her life only to be uh, confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. She's paralyzed from the neck down. New believer, 17 years old, paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life, ridden to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. That is a prime example of someone that Satan would say, I'm going to lie to this person, and they're walking away. Today, Johnny has the biggest disability ministry in all of America, maybe even the world, right? And so, obviously, she has experienced her fair share of pain and suffering. And she knows what it feels like to cling to the truth of Christ, to cling to God, the fact that God is good. She knows what it it feels like to cling to that truth in the midst of suffering. And here's how she describes it. I'm a visual learner, so this was helpful for me. She says, suffering is like you're standing in a garden, and one second it's all beautiful, and the very next second you've got these hedges of thorns, right? These, These really tall hedges that have just grown up, and they've grown up so tall that all you can see around you is just thorn and pain and brokenness and hedges of thorns. It's, it's so high, it's like all you can see. This isn't a direct quote from her. This is someone else that she's actually quoting, but I love this quote. I'm going to read it to you guys. It says, a high hedge, a high hedge cannot shut out our view of the skies, nor can it prevent the soul from looking up into the face of God. Because there is so little else to see, the hedged-in Christian cannot afford to hang his head. He must look up. It's that Christian who may possibly apprehend God more fully than the one who moves about freely and unconfined. We, Christian, today, cannot afford in suffering to hang our head. We have to look up. And what do we see when we look up? We see the goodness of God through the lens of the gospel. That's your last point for today. Affliction reveals the hope of the gospel. Now, the gospel is kind of funny, right? We always hear about the upside-down nature of the gospel. The gospel message says that for anything good to happen, Jesus has to die, right? Now, where, where is the hope in that? Where is the hope in the message that Jesus has to die? The disciples, Jesus' disciples asked the same question. Think about it, right? For years and years and years, they've waited for this Messiah, and they see Jesus, this guy who finally comes. Yes, our Savior. He is going to make everything right in the world. He enters the town, and they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, Jesus. You are our Savior. One minute, and then the very next minute, he's being nailed to a cross. Where is the hope? Where is the hope in that message? What they failed to see, because they had their heads hung low, because they had their heads hung low, they failed to see that Jesus was accomplishing the single greatest thing that's ever happened in all of history. God used the greatest evil and injustice of all time to bring the only source of hope and healing to you and me. And so the, the, the hope of the gospel, the gospel tells us that we have hope in two things. The first one is this, a God who suffers. 
a God who suffers. Christianity is the only religion that has an all-powerful, totally sovereign God who suffers not only alongside his creation, but at the hands of creation, of his creation. Christianity is the only, the only religion to preach that. And because of that, the gospel tells us that Jesus knows pain. He knows hunger and thirst. He knows rejection, betrayal, torture, and even death. Jesus Christ knew death. And he knew them so that we can know two things. First, we're not being punished. If we are facing suffering, if we are currently afflicted today, we are not being punished because Christ took our punishment upon himself on the cross. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ took our punishment upon himself on the cross. And so if we are suffering, if we're suffering here today, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are not being punished for something that we've done wrong. The second thing that we know in a God who suffers is you're not alone in your suffering. You are not alone. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ knew death. He knew pain. He knew suffering. He knew affliction so that we can know that he is suffering with us when we suffer. This is just a side note. Um, as, as Christians, I think we all know that there's a reason, right? Like we're pretty quick to recite God has a plan versus. Um, and so I think that most of us probably know there's a reason for everything. God has a reason. God has a plan. His ways are higher than ours, right? But I think the problem with suffering, the, the thing that makes suffering so hard is we don't know what the reason is. It's hard to believe that God's doing something good when we don't know what he's doing. We don't always know what the reason is, but because of the cross, we know what the reason isn't. It's not because Jesus doesn't care. You're not suffering because Jesus is removed from suffering. Jesus, the cross, the cross gives us hope in a God who suffers with us. Now, we know, too, that the story doesn't end at the cross, and so the gospel also tells us that we have hope in a resurrection. That's the very last point for you today. We have hope in a resurrection. Jesus' resurrection proved that our suffering will one day come to an end. One day, death and pain and sorrow and brokenness will be no more because Jesus will return and wipe away every single tear. I want to just tell a quick story. I know I'm running out of time here, but there is a guy, a pastor on staff at Coastal named Pastor David Bounds, and he, um, he's older. He's been in ministry for a very, very long time, and he would tell you that he's nearing the end of his life, and um, his body's shutting down. His body is broken, and you can just see he's got... Um, He's got arthritis, and he's got Parkinson's, and occasionally we'll have him pray for us at our all-staff meetings. And you can hear the pain in his voice. It's hard for him to get words out, even in prayer. Now, it's some of the most theologically deep prayers I've ever heard, but you can tell in his voice that he is suffering. And at our last staff meeting, I said, just walked up to him, Pastor David, how are you? Are you okay? How are you doing? And he looked at me, and with that same pain in his voice, he said, this light and momentary affliction, this light and momentary affliction is preparing me for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Pastor David 
in the midst of bodily pain, in the midst of suffering, has hope in the resurrection. Now, some of us would say, okay, that's great, hope for the future, but what about hope for right now? My grandfather had a similar story to Pastor David. He was a deacon in the church that he was a part of. He was very plugged in, loved the Lord, and by my, in my eyes, he, he did no wrong, right? Like, for, for, you know, we talk about measuring up goodness. He was a good guy, in my opinion. And at the time, I wasn't following the Lord, and, and in an instant, he got diagnosed with stage four brain cancer and said, you have a couple months to live. He was in his 70s. And my family, um, we were in the we were in the hospital room with him the day before he was going to go in for surgery to remove 40% of his brain. And so he would not, he would not come back from that surgery the same guy. And before, before we left that day, before he went in for the surgery, he pulled me outside and he said, I want to talk to you. And he said, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in there. I might not come back from this alive. I might not come back from this the same man. But I want you to know, Hunter, that... You, there is hope in the gospel message of Christ. I have hope, and this light and momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That conversation saved my life. I was an unbeliever, and that was the first time that I had heard the gospel, and it actually meant something to me. So where is the good? God used my grandfather's affliction to deepen his faith in God, and to bring me to saving knowledge of Christ. There is hope in the midst of suffering through the gospel. When the psalmist says, it's good that I was afflicted, we see that God wants to use our suffering to establish hope in himself, hope in the gospel, and hope for eternal life with him. As I close here, the band, you guys can come on back up. Um, I want to just kind of acknowledge something. I realize that this hasn't been the most application-heavy sermon Right, you may be thinking, what am I going to do with this? Um, and that was intentional. I don't think that there's three easy steps to dealing with pain and suffering. I, I don't want you to leave here thinking these are three things that I need to do to suffer better. That's not my goal. Um, but I also don't want you to leave thinking, okay, well, that was great, but I don't know what to do with it. So here's how I want to close. I want to address three types of people in the room today. The first is this, the non-afflicted, the not-afflicted person here in this room. You're currently... Uh, I'm, yeah, you're not currently suffering and you're thinking, what, what in the world does any of this mean to me, right? I'm not experiencing this pain and suffering right now, and so I don't really have anything to do with this sermon. Here's what I'll say. Paul tells us that if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. You are a part of the body of Christ, and Jesus tells us to mourn with those who mourn. And so if you're here today, you're not, you're not suffering, you're not currently facing affliction, here's my encouragement for you. There is someone in your life who either is or will be afflicted and suffering. Jesus instructs us to mourn with those who mourn. And so come alongside that person, find that person, come alongside them, pray for them, be a friend to them, be a brother or sister in Christ to them in the time when they're afflicted. That's the non-afflicted person. The, the, the next type of person is the currently afflicted person. This person is suffering, and you're in that hedgerow where all you can see is thorns. You don't know up from down. Here, here, here's my encouragement for you. If you're currently suffering, the the book of Job, right, 
Job is afflicted more than most people that we would know in our lifetime. He loses everything, his health, his family, his wealth, all of it. It's all gone. And that all happens in like the first few chapters of the book. Then we've got 40-something chapters of basically Job is complaining. He's just complaining. God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you could be doing this. Does this mean you're not good? He's doing that whole questioning thing. He even at one point accuses God, says, God, I don't think that you know what you're doing. And at the end of the book, God says, Job's friends, you guys got it wrong, but Job got it right this whole time. What in the world is happening? Like, how, how can God say, Job, even though you've complained and you've argued and you've accused me of not being a good God, you still got it right. How, how can he say that? Because Job did all of that stuff. He said all of those things in the presence of the Lord. He never stopped praying. He never left the presence of the Lord. So here's my encouragement for you. If you're afflicted today, if you're an inch from breaking, go ahead and break, but break in the presence of the Lord. Go to the Lord in prayer. Let him know how you're feeling. Don't be afraid to question, but never leave the presence of the Lord. And the last person to address today is the silently afflicted. The person who's here, and you are afflicted, you are suffering, and you don't know which way is up, but here's the deal. You haven't told anybody about it. Maybe you're afflicted by sin and you're embarrassed about what people might think. Maybe you don't know anyone here at the church. If that's you today, I want to encourage you. We want to come alongside you and be the body of Christ for you. We want to come alongside you and mourn with you and suffer with you and pray with you, but you have to let us know. We can't do that unless you tell us. And so here's what I want to do. Prayer team, Go, guys, go ahead and raise your hands. Prayer team, we've got guys around the room. Um, thanks, Chip, for raising your hand. That was only one. Everybody else, stand up. Calling you out. Come on. There we go. There's the hands. All right, so we've got some prayer, prayer team um, people here. If you need prayer today, if you are suffering and you haven't told anyone, or if you're suffering and you have and people know and you still just need prayer, find me, find one of these people. We want to pray with you. And so I'll leave you guys with this. This is my concluding thought for today. The Christian life is not free of affliction. But when we hope in the gospel, when we hope in the gospel, we, like Paul, can say this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you are good. God, you are so good, so committed to defeating evil that you, you can use the evil in our lives to show us more of who you are, to show us more of your goodness, to deepen our faith in you. And so God, I, I pray today for the person who is suffering. I pray that they would not stray from your presence, Lord, but that they would wrestle in the presence of God, that they would break in the presence of the Lord. God, I pray for the person who hasn't told anyone that they're suffering yet. Lord, I pray that right now would be the time that they find a trusted brother or sister in Christ, or maybe even just meet one of our prayer partners for the first time. God, I pray that you would encourage them to allow us to suffer alongside them. As Jesus said, we want to mourn with those who mourn. When one part of the body suffers, the whole thing suffers. So God, I thank you for this morning. 
I thank you that even in the midst of our suffering, you are still good. You are the ultimate standard of goodness and you can never break that standard. You will always be good. Your love endures forever. Thank you for being that God to us. Thank you for being who you are. We love you, God. And we give you the glory today. We pray all these things in your name.